There's an incredible project run by Rob Dunn, Noah Fear, Holly Manager, and others called the Wildlife of Your Home Project. They just got a paper that came out a couple of days ago that got off press where they sampled the microbes in thousands of homes across the United States, having people go and swab four sites within their homes, and then they sequence these communities. I did the swabbing with my daughter. Um, I still haven't looked up what's in my house. I'm kind of scared of that. Um, uh, and what we've been doing is sort of comparable efforts. Um, we have a seagrass microbiome project where we're trying to engage the public and other researchers in sampling. Um, we've been doing bone and shoe sampling at a variety of conferences to get people sort of thinking about the microbes in their world. We have a thing called Project Mercury, which is a collaboration with a group called Science Cheerleaders, which go to, we've gone to hundreds of major sporting events and other events and sampled microbes at their events and then sequenced some of them. We also cultured microbes from these events and sent a collection of these microbes up to the space station for a growth uh, competition experiment. And the last one I want to mention is our newest citizen science project called the Kitty Microbiome, run by Holly Hans in my lab, where just like you biome, if you're interested in your cats or your cat's health, you can sign up to participate in a home um, kitty litter sampling project and get some data on the microbiome of your cats and participate in a better understanding of cats and their microbiomes. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. <laughs> and so I think to, to, to just end here, um, I'm really excited about the area of microbial study, microbial diversity, and microbiomes. I'm really concerned with the complexity of the systems with the misinterpretation and overinterpretation of what's going on in the systems. You know, the low-hanging fruit is the thousands of examples of confusing causation and correlation, but there are many other examples out there. And I think that by engaging the scientific community, by engaging these other communities, and by engaging the public, we can get to some point where people view microbial diversity as something that is interesting something that is potentially important, but something that we need to study. And I think I will uh, end there. Thanks. Introduce our next speaker, uh, Professor Jennifer Dodd from UC Berkeley. I'm um, very jealous of her. She got to grow up in Hawaii, town of Hilo, the Big Island. It's one of my favorite places to vacation. She earned her bachelor's degree from Pomona College in 1985 and completed her PhD at Harvard in 1989, focusing on the development of self-replicating RNA based on the activity of a self-splicing group one intron. In fact, a recurring theme in her career has been that RNA, of course, can function, as we know now, thanks to her and the others who work in this area, can function as a template as well as a catalyst. Uh, as a postdoc associate, University of Colorado, someplace that I attended as well. She crystallized catalytic RNA molecules with the goals of determining the three-dimensional structure of those catalytic molecules. Um, she continued that work uh, at Yale University, where she became a professor in 1994. And in 2002, uh, Professor Dodd moved to UC Berkeley, where her lab began studying the function of small RNAs that control the use of uh, cellular uh, genetic information. This led to her work on bacterial immune systems that you're going to hear about this morning that employs small RNA molecules derived from viruses to target and destroy foreign DNA. Um, in collaboration with uh, the lab of Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, 
she and her team um, have discovered the function of an RNA-guided enzyme we know now as uh, Cas9, you're going to hear about that as well, uh, whose ability to cut double-stranded DNA can be programmed by changing a guide arc. <laughs> They recognize that such an activity could be employed as a molecular tool to do genome editing and has spawned a revolution in the field of molecular genetics and genomics. She's been honored with many awards. Um, she's a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, member of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, she was named to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and elected to the Institute of Medicine. In 2014, she received the Lurie Prize in Biomedical Sciences from the Foundation for the NIH. This year, she and Emmanuel uh, received the 2015 Breakthrough Prize given to scientists who change the world. Well, sounds like a familiar phrase to us here, doesn't it? So, uh, without further ado, the title of our talk today is CRISPR Biology and Biotechnology from Discovery to Applications. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Professor Jennifer Dobbin. Sequence in the genome 
that, could, that, is, that consists of a set of short, repeated sequence elements, about typically 40 base pairs long. So these are shown here in these black diamonds. These are sequences repeated over and over. And in between are short sequences of about the same length that correspond, in many cases, to sequences from viruses, viruses that infect these bacteria. And together with, so these came to be called CRISPR before anybody knew what they did. And uh, it was also noted that typically next door to these types of sequences in bacterial genomes, there were located CRISPR-associated or Cas genes. And so this really had the look of some kind of a system in these bugs. And so the proposal in, in these uh, three publications in 2005 was that perhaps these were some sort of genetic signature of, a, of an immune system, some way that, that bacteria could record genetically infections that they experienced over the course of time, created the genetic record of those infections, and then perhaps were able to employ uh, that information uh, for protection of the genome. This is where we got involved. Why did Jill Van Jill call me to tell me about this? Well, as Jonathan, uh, or as uh, the, uh, you heard in the introduction, you know, we've been interested for a long time in how RNA molecules are used in, uh, in terms of, in, in to control the expression of information from genomes. And so uh, Jill contacted me thinking that perhaps these sequences might be employed at the level of RNA molecules. That turned out to be exactly right. So what emerged over the next few years was that bacteria that have one or more CRISPR elements have the ability to detect foreign DNA that infects the cell, shown here through a viral infection, but it could also be through a plasma transformation. And they are able to integrate little bits of that viral DNA into the CRISPR locus. These bits are integrated such that they, each new piece of viral DNA is flanked by a copy of the repeated sequence on either side, shown by these little webs. And the entire CRISPR locus is then transcribed into RNA. RNAs are processed into shorter bits that each include one of the virally derived sequences together with some flanking uh, parts of the repeat elements. And those RNAs then assemble with proteins encoded by the Cas genes to form RNA protein targeting complexes that can recognize matching sequences foreign DNA and lead to its degradation. And uh, so one of the things that's really remarkable about the CRISPR system is that there, there are many versions of this in, in bacteria. So about 50% of the sequenced uh, bacteria have one or more CRISPR sequences, and it's been possible to categorize them into different subtypes. And so I'm showing you here examples of the sets of class genes that are found in the three major subtypes of CRISPR systems. You might notice that for the type 1 systems at the top and the type 3 systems at the bottom, you're seeing lots of, lots of Cas genes, and that's because these systems typically employ a whole host of proteins that assemble into a big architecture that binds to the CRISPR RNA and acts as a scaffold to interact with matching DNA sequences, unwind the DNA, and then uh, allow uh, a separate enzyme to come in and cut the DNA systems or these uh, type 3 systems down here, there's emerging evidence that these actually targeted both DNA and RNA. So they're, they're really interesting, complex machineries with many components. 
And uh, in, in, so we began uh, in my lab actually studying uh, several examples of the type 1 systems. And then in 2011, I went to a conference and I met uh, a wonderful colleague of mine, med a medical microbiologist, Emmanuel Charpentier. She was studying a bug that had a type 2 CRISPR system in the genome. And what was interesting there was that the single gene called Cas9 in that system had been shown genetically to be critical for the function of the immune system in that bug. And so we set out to collaborate to figure out the function of, cat, of this, uh, this protein Cas9. And I would say that that really led to what I call the aha moment, which was the finding that Cas9 is a programmable protein that cuts DNA. So it's like a restriction enzyme in the sense that it makes a double-stranded break in DNA, but it's programmable in the sense that it uses a small piece of RNA to guide it to a site in DNA where it makes that double-stranded break. So I'm going to show this to you. I want to show you uh, some aspects about, uh, first about the structure of this protein. So this is actually a 3D printed model of Cas9 uh, where the protein is shown in white, bound to its guiding RNA in orange, and uh, to a double-stranded DNA target sequence here. I'm going to strip away one of the catalytic domains of the protein so you can actually see inside the protein. So you can see this is a sort of a clamshell that has cleft that binds to the RNA. And what's quite remarkable is that this, uh, this protein engages with DNA that has a 20 nucleotide sequence that can form base pairs with a 20 nucleotide stretch in the RNA. So this forms an RNA-DNA hybrid in the center of the protein locally unwinding or opening up the, the DNA double helix and allowing two catalytic centers in the protein to make a double-stranded break in the DNA. Now, when, uh, when Martin Jinek, who was a postdoc in my lab at the time doing this biochemical work, had his initial uh, results showing that Cas9, which is now shown to you here as a cartoon um, protein bound to uh, a, a double-stranded DNA molecule, you can see the DNA is opened up, the two catalytic sites ready to make a cut. And what was very interesting is that in bacteria, in nature, this protein actually uses two separate RNA molecules to, to provide the programming information. Here's the RNA, uh, here's the strand that is derived from the CRISPR locus, so it has the sequence that provides the base pairing information to the DNA. So this, this uh, 20 nucleotide sequence provides the specificity. Um, but it doesn't work unless unless a second RNA is present in the complex, this RNA called tracer, that forms an interaction at the other end of the CRISPR RNA and provides a structure that the Cas9 protein can bind to. So in nature, this is a single protein with two separate RNA transcripts that can do this, uh, this targeted uh, cutting DNA. And so what Martin was able to do is uh, to show that he could actually make a simpler system than nature has done by linking together the CRISPR RNA and the tracer RNA to create a single guide form of the RNA that would both guide this protein to a particular sequence in DNA for cleavage and also assemble efficiently with the protein in the first place through interactions that occur over here. And so with this two-component system, this then provided, the idea was that this would provide a, uh, a way that we could program Cas9 with a single uh, RNA transcript and direct it to different sites in DNA by simply changing this sequence here. 
And so Martin did a very simple uh, experiment, but really one of the favorite experiments from, from, from my, uh, my experience in my lab so far, um, which was in vitro to just take a double-stranded DNA plasmid and design five different versions of a single-guide RNA that we predicted should direct Cas9 to make a double-stranded break at a particular site in this plasmid. And um, I want to point out, too, that one of the other aspects of the biochemical work that Martin had done showed that in addition to binding to a double strand, to a, a, a 20 base pair sequence of DNA, these sites actually need to be adjacent to a small motif called the PAM, which for this protein is a GG dinucleotide. So we picked five sites that simply had, uh, had uh, a 20 base pair sequence adjacent to a GG nucleotide, and then to do the experiment, Martin did a double digest of Cas9 programmed with one of these guide RNAs and a second restriction enzyme that cuts upstream of this region of the plasma. And what you can see on the Sargros gel is that in each of these doubly digested plasmids, we saw release of a DNA fragment that had the side corresponding to cutting at the position directed by these single guide RNAs. So this was one we really knew that we had a programmable protein system to do this. And, uh, and so for, for us, this, this was kind of the point when this project really turned from a basic science investigation of bacterial immunity to realizing that like, this might be a really exciting technology. And the reason for thinking about that was the fact that you know, there was a long history, really decades, I would say, since I, certainly since I was a graduate student in the 1980s, of appreciation that cells, uh, eukaryotic cells, have a uh, robust mechanisms for detecting double-stranded DNA breaks and repairing them. So if cells experience a double-stranded break in the chromosome, they can repair that break either by non-homologous end-joining, in which these ends are ligated back together, very typically with a small insertion or deletion of the site of repair, or if there's a donor uh, template DNA molecule present in the cell that has homology to the broken uh, site, of the site where the break occurred, then this sequence can be recombined into the DNA, so the new genetic information is actually incorporated inside the brain. And so, you know, there's uh, lots of uh, work done to figure out how to introduce double-stranded breaks at precise places in the genome so that you could actually trigger this kind of repair and thereby introduce changes at sites where you might like to, uh, to have a change in the genomic sequence of the cell. And um, probably most promising were the, were the uh, protein approaches, so engineered proteins for doing the same finger nucleases and talons being the most famous among these that allow engineering of proteins that have very specific DNA binding capabilities. And by coupling those to DNA cleavage domains, you could actually trigger double-stranded breaks at targeted sites that would then induce this kind of repair. So we thought that with Cas9, this would actually bypass the need to make uh, individual proteins for each experiment. And then uh, because we had a single protein that could be reprogrammed by simply changing the sequence of short uh, RNA. So I'll show you, I'll show you a, a video that just I made this for our dean, actually, to just sort of illustrate how the uh, how, how we how we sort of imagine that this works inside of a cell. And so the idea is that, uh, okay, so the idea, we're zooming into the cell, and, and 
course, in a eukaryotic cell, the DNA is in the nucleus and it's highly packaged. In chromatin, the DNA is wound around nucleosomes. So this bacterial complex has to get into the nucleus. It has to interact with this highly packaged DNA and search through the DNA until it finds a sequence that matches the sequence of the guide RNA. And when that occurs, then this uh, protein complex with the RNA is able to bind to the DNA. It opens up the duplex, and it actually makes a double-stranded break, the blunt cut initially that occurs. And then uh, this break has to be sensed by the machinery in the cell and repaired. In this uh, example, this is showing integration of a new sequence of DNA at the site of the break. So recombining the new information at a very specific place in the cell. And so what happened was that when we proposed this idea initially in 2012, many labs, including our own, began testing whether this would work in different kinds of cells. And so what we've seen over the last three years, right, is this has just uh, taken off incredibly. So this is the this is just the, doing a quick search of PubMed and showing you publications using the CRISPR technology versus uh, work that's been done using same figures and talents. So that, those, uh, those uh, technologies certainly were uh, very important in the early days, showing that you could use this kind of strategy for genome editing. I think this, the ease of use of the CRISPR system has just made it a technology that's been adopted very widely uh, and internationally for all sorts of applications. So one question I wanted to just pose to you and, and try, to, try to tell you my thoughts about it is why is it that this technology took off so quickly? A lot of people ask me this, uh, people in the media ask all the time, why did this technology take off the way it did? And I think there are really a uh, few important reasons for this. Uh, one is that uh, sort of what I call software versus hardware. So I would say that the CRISPR system is really a sort of like software for the genome. It's easily reprogrammed with RNA versus the hardwired systems that were available previously that involved having to engineer proteins for each genome editing experiment. So it just means that the speed at which one can do these kinds of experiments has accelerated greatly and it's become much easier to do it. So we, in my own lab, we had beginning graduate students that come to the lab, they've really never done it in molecular biology before, and within a few weeks they're making, uh, they're editing a human gene, human cell lines with this. The mechanism, as I'm gonna get into here shortly, is, is uh, very rapid and accurate, so this is really designed, it's been sort of evolved in bacteria to be a very accurate system, and it has to be fast, right? It has to be fast, or a bacterial cell will not be protected from the virus. So it's, uh, it's been evolved to, to operate that way. And finally, of course, this has been now adapted very broadly for use in different kinds of animals and plants. So I'm gonna give you a couple of um, specific examples of how it's being used in those systems um, in genetics. So, uh, so I wanna, wanna point out that this, uh, this system is really what I consider a platform for programmable DNA recognition. So in addition to being able to generate double-stranded breaks in DNA, which are then repaired so that the covalent change made to the genome, um, it turns out that the Cas9 protein is also very easily modified. Okay, so it's easy to turn it into a deactivated or de-Cas9 uh, protein that has inactivated catalytic domains but maintains the ability uh, to recognize DNA at sites directed by the guide RNA. So this 
park this protein at specific places in the genome, and um, that approach has been used for live cell imaging, for things like uh, transcriptional control, activation and repression, and I think increasingly we'll, we'll see use of this for epigenetics, where you can actually control things like methylation of certain sites in the genome. Uh, also, um, right, so this is sort of using various chimeric forms of Cas9. Also, it's a uh, protein that is, I would say, naturally multiplexed. And what I mean by that is that in bacteria, bacteria will program Cas9 with multiple different guide RNAs in the same cell because they want to protect against multiple viruses at once. And so that natural property has been adapted for applications in the laboratory um, by employing multiple guide RNAs to program Cas9 to introduce double-stranded breaks at, at a number of sites at once. So people can use this to introduce a series of changes in the genome within the same experiment. And um, if, if uh, homology directly appears, it's actually, actually being used now to introduce multiple genes into a genome. So you can actually do pathway engineering in a very straightforward way. And as I mentioned, it's designed for rapid accurate DNA target recognition. So I want to say a few words about this. So my lab has been working very hard to understand how this incredible machine actually operates. And it's a, the more we learn, the more we're astounded at what, what biology has come up with. It's just an incredible tool. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible protein that is able to interact with DNA very precisely in most cases and, and to, to function very accurately. And so I want to tell you a few things about how we understand right now that this, that this protein actually functions. So um, uh, there's been a, a number of, of efforts to, to look at, at crystal structures of Cas9. There are now um, a handful of pro, uh, crystal structures that, that have been published for this. And I wanted to just point out one uh, recent effort from our own lab in which it was possible to crystallize the Cas9 protein bound to a guide RNA so this is the, the actual complex that goes searching through the genome looking for matching uh, DNA sequences. So this, this is uh, the, the, the uh, pre-interaction form of the complex, the, the actual surveillance uh, form of the complex. And I just want to point out a couple of things about the structure that I think are really, really interesting. So, um, so as, we, uh, as we zoom in here, so here's the, the actual guide part of the RNA. Remarkably, in this structure, we can only see 10 of the 20 nucleotides that are responsible for target recognition. So it looks like this part of the RNA is pre-ordered in the complex. And uh, as we zoom in, we're going to look at a space-going model of the protein. You'll see that this guide RNA is really, this strand is really buried and cleft in the protein. So these first couple of nucleotides in the guide are exposed to solvent that are available for DNA interaction. And they're already in a helical conformation, ready to bind to DNA. Now what I'm doing is I'm superimposing this on a structure solved by Martin Genics lab of a complex of Cas9 with RNA and a bound uh, strand of DNA. And part of the DNA you're seeing here is actually the piece that includes the CAM nucleotide, so just uh, right next door to the actual target site right here. And what I think is very interesting is that this protein already has a binding cleft for the CAM nucleotides that's ready to go. It's positioned, pre-positioned to interact with the CAM, and, uh, and then to somehow, we think, 
that uh, interaction with the PM triggers a local unwinding of the DNA right adjacent to the PM that allows these base pairs to form between one side of the DNA duplex and nucleotides in the guide part of the RNA. We have a lot of evidence that that, that interaction, so that sort of uh, uh, initial contact between Cas9 and DNA is really what drives target recognition and specificity. And we're still really trying to understand the, you know, the kinetics of that, the energetics of that. Um, by the way, this is a protein that doesn't hydrolyze ATP, right? so it has to, it's really functioning like a helicase, it has to unwind DNA, but it has to do that without hydrolyzing ATP. So one of the questions that's always driving our experiments is where does the energy do that? It's sort of a remarkable thing. So I wanted to show you a couple of experiments that have been done by a student in the lab, Spencer Knight, who's working in collaboration with Bob Tijan at Berkeley, as well as the, the folks at Genelia Farm Research Campus in, in Virginia, to do live cell imaging on Cas9. So we've done a lot of work in vitro, looking at how Cas9 searches through large uh, genomic-sized pieces of DNA, looking for target sites. We really wanted to understand how this actually works in a living cell. And so what Spencer did was to use the HaloTech approach to create a fusion protein of the deactivated form of Cas9. So this is Cas9 that doesn't cut DNA, but can bind to it in an RNA program way. And he fused this to this a small protein domain that makes a covalent interaction with ligands that look like this. So these are fluorophores that can be introduced into cells. And so if cells are expressing this fusion protein, and they take up these, uh, these uh, uh, little halo tag ligands, they can actually make a covalent linkage with the chimeric protein. And now you have a fluorescently labeled version of the protein of interest. And, um, I'm just going to show you a couple of experiments that, that uh, have been done using this kind of strategy. So one of the things that we wanted to understand was how is the, how, what's the mechanism by which this protein searches through the genome? And what we find is that we think that this is a protein that is uh, really able to interact with DNA not through a recessive mechanism of binding at one end and sliding to find a target, but actually we think it's very rapidly binding and releasing the DNA. And we have a lot of evidence for that, both from in vitro studies as well as these sorts of live cell uh, imaging experiments. And um, furthermore, it looks like this, is a, this protein has remarkable abilities to deal with highly structured regions of DNA. I'm just going to show you one example. So um, we used a uh, labeled protein in, in uh, cells that have a uh, heterochromatin protein that's been fluorescently labeled. And we can do particle tracking of Cas9 in these cells and look at regions of the inside the nucleus that are being interrogated by these particles of Cas9. And I show it to you this way, it doesn't look like much, but if we take images over time and we uh, superimpose them, then we get an image that looks like this. So what you're seeing here are these very bright regions of the nucleus that correspond to heterochromatic parts of the genome. And you can see these tracks of Cas9 particles as they move through this, uh, this uh, chromatin, both the euchromatic regions as well as heterochromatin. What we're very uh, interested to note is that you can actually see forays of these Cas9 proteins into heterochromatic regions of the genome. We see evidence when we look at editing in these cells that you can get editing of sites that are heterochromatic 
but the kinetics were slower. And I think that's very consistent with what we see in this kind of a search mechanism. So we'd love to understand how that actually works. How does this protein deal with structures that it clearly doesn't have to deal with in, uh, in bacteria? So that's definitely an ongoing uh, study. Um, so one of the things that's, of course, been of great interest is what is it that prevents off-target DNA cleavage? There's been lots of interest in this and lots of genome-wide studies looking at uh, off-target cleavage and binding of Cas9. And um, one of the things that's emerging from a lot of the mechanistic work that we and others are doing is that uh, this is a protein that's, that's really been evolved um, to have accuracy on multiple levels. And so that's not to say that you never observe off targets, but I think that it's naturally got a series of checkpoints at which it can uh, decide whether or not it's going to actually lead to a productive binding and cleavage in DNA. And I just want to show you a few experiments that really were, uh, we set about to, to test situations where you have a guide RNA that can base pair the DNA and has some mismatches, especially at the end far away from the PAMP, so it's well established that, uh, that uh, mismatches here adjacent to the PAMP are very deleterious for guide RNA binding, but we think that's partly explained by the structural data that I showed you. It's a very important role of those first few uh, nucleotides in the guide forming base pairs with the DNA as the, right after the PAMP interaction occurs with the protein to start unwinding the DNA in a directional fashion from this end to this end. But the question is, what if you have mismatches over here? What's interesting is that uh, certainly in vitro, mismatches here actually have a, a very deleterious effect on DNA cleavage activity of Cas9. So why is that? And so uh, three students in the lab set out to investigate this question. And they started off by, they noted that when they looked at the available crystal structures of Cas9 without DNA or with just the guide RNA bound, this is the one that I showed you there, or uh, the protein alone, in every case, this uh, particular domain here in yellow, which is called the H and H domain, it's one of the catalytic domains of Cas9, was in the wrong place to actually cut the DNA. So um, here's the cleavage site in, in, the, uh, in the DNA, and the active site of the H and H domain of this protein is over here. It's about 30 angstroms away from where it needs to be to actually cut the DNA. So all of these crystal structures, although being very informative in many ways, are not showing us the actual active structure of this protein. So we wanted to understand that and um, figure out how this protein, what, what triggers it to actually get into a catalytically active population. Um, and so this is just showing you this uh, the case, this example here, three different uh, structural uh, crystal structures that are available in the and the fact that this HNH domain is not in the right place to cut the DNA in any of those examples. So what three students did, Sam Sternberg, Ben LaFrance, and Janice Chen, was they got together and, first of all, created a model of the active structure of this protein. This was not done in any very sophisticated way. It was just simply taking this HNH domain and rotating it and translating it so that the active site would actually be placed adjacent to the cis-isle phosphate in the DNA. So we know this has to get over here, and the question is, when does it do that? And what triggers it to do that? And so to start addressing that, Sam and Ben and Janice set up a system where they could actually put pairs of dyes in the Cas9 at different places that would monitor 
this presumed conformational change of the protein. And so in this first experiment, they, put, they placed dyes on two sides of the protein such that they would start off far apart, uh, of course, at least uh, according to these crystallographic structures that we had access to, but should end up close together if the protein assumes the active conformation of the DNA. And, um, and so they tested this, and very nicely it was satisfying to see that when they added both guide RNA and DNA to this doubly labeled version of Cas9, they saw a very nice change in fluorescence resonance energy transfer relative to either the protein alone or the protein with just the guide RNA back to it. So it looked like there really was a conformational change induced by DNA binding, which is consistent with other data that we have. And also, it was very uh, nice to see that that threat change, which you can see plotted right here, only occurs when we have a fully uh, on-target DNA substrate. So if we had a mismatched DNA or DNA that had a mutation in the PAM sequence or in the seed, uh, right, the sequence right next door to the PAM, then we saw no or very little uh, change in threat. So the question was, what really triggers this change? How much, uh, how accurate is this targeting? And so this was an experiment in which uh, we introduced base pair mismatches from this end of the DNA target, moving, uh, sort of starting at the distal end away from where the PAM is, moving uh, closer to the PAM, and monitoring the change in threat as you bind each of these different uh, DNA molecules to the Cas9 guide what you can see is that although one base pair at the very end of the duplex is tolerated, you still see a very robust change in threat. You see this falling off as you introduce mutations in the DNA, this distal end of the duplex. So it really suggests that there's a sensor that is, uh, is responsible for triggering a conformational change that's really looking across the whole length of the DNA duplex. And um, uh, this is a... Um, experiment to sort of try to validate that observation by taking a different pair of threat dyes that replaced a different, different site in the Cas9 protein such that they start off close together in space but move apart when this conformational change happens. And so when we do that experiment, we see the opposite. Right? So they actually, this is exactly what you see, is that they move apart. We see a stronger threat signal as base pair mismatches are introduced from the distal end of the target sequence. So it really tells us that there's a, a close connection between detecting a bona fide target sequence and this conformational change that puts the protein into a state where it can actually cut the DNA. And this is just summarizing these observations. So we, we think that recognition of DNA targets really drives conformational changes, particularly of this, uh, this catalytic domain called HMH, and that these changes are sensitive to RNA-DNA complementarity. One of the ways that this system is set up to be accurate and recognize and clean only target sites that are really fully based here to the guideline. Um, and I didn't show you this uh, data, but we, we have evidence that the DNA cleavage kinetics actually scale with the extent of this HMH conformational change as detected by threat. So I want to show you a movie that Ben LaFrance put together that really illustrates the remarkable series of conformational changes we now have evidence for Cas9. So this is a protein that. Uh, um, so it's a protein that uh, starts off in, uh, in a sort of closed state and then swings over to form a very different structure that has a cleft down the center 
that accommodates the Gaia RNA. So now looking at the Gaia RNA bound form of Cas9. And then we're going to morph between that structure and the, the confirmation that this assumes when DNA binds. So you can see further confirmational changes when that DNA strand is there that allow this HNH domain to begin to move into place, but it still has to swing this additional 30 Oxford distance to position the active site in the right place to actually cut the DNA. It's that swinging motion, we think, is really triggered by detection of a full, fully duplexed interaction between a target DNA sequence and the RNA. So, you know, why do we care about all of this? It's kind of fun, and it's kind of cool to see a protein machine moving that way, but I think that there's going to be some really great applications of this. So one of the things we're already working on is uh, being able to put dyes, pairs of dyes, in this protein so that we can detect a fluorescent or FRET signal in cells, in live cells, only when this protein is actually docked on an actual target site. So it's a way that we can reduce background for live cell imaging. I think has really exciting potential for the future. And we also are imagining other applications um, for things like diagnostics. Um, so I want to, just in the last uh, few minutes here, I just want to um, start sort of addressing this question. So, you know, what do we do now that genomes can be edited relatively quickly and relatively easily? What kinds of things does this enable, um, and uh, where, where, where is this technology really going? And so um, I think you're, you know, you're aware that there's lots of research going on in different types of systems, so of course plants, uh, various kinds of animals that might be important for things like organ uh, donation, uh, animals that are important to us as pets, and, uh, and then of course uh, various kinds of fungi. I think I want to just mention one application in a fungal system that uh, is uh, being done by colleagues of mine at Berkeley, and this is uh, these are a few slides that I got from Jane Kate, who's a professor at the Energy Biosciences Institute at UC Berkeley, to describe an application that they've made of the CRISPR system for engineering, uh, in, uh, in this case, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and also uh, for industrially important strains of yeast. And so uh, in James Lamb, so they've been very interested in engineering yeast to be better at, at, uh, at biofuel production. And this, um, I'm showing you here just an example of a yeast cell that has to have both a uh, transporter to transport in these kinds of um, Substrates, this is a cell virus, a substrate into the cell, followed by an uh, enzyme that does the breakdown into glucose and can then be turned into fuel. And so his labs have a long interest in doing this, and they've been able to engineer yeast that have this transporter and have the enzyme that does the efficient breakdown. Um, but nonetheless, uh, these, these cells are actually not that good at, uh, they're really not very fast at this reaction. So here's uh, what, here's the sort of what you can see for um, ethanol production when you're using uh, uh, glucose as a substrate versus what you see when you're using non-glucose or cell bios as a substrate. So the kinetics are a lot slower, and the question was, could they find a way to engineer these cells so that they would be much more efficient at this process? And so here's where Cas9 comes in. Uh, so it turns out that you know yeasts are actually normally very, they're, they're really quite good at recombination, but they're not that good at uh, at introducing sort of very efficient introduction of new sequences at the site of the break. So they do sort of not analogous enjoying very well, but the, the introduction of new sequences at the site of double strand break is often not that efficient. And so the strategy was to transform these with a single plasmid that would encode Cas9 and the guide RNA. Um, so these are being co-expressed and assembling into RNA-guided Cas9 proteins. 
that could then introduce double-stranded breaks in the genome of yeast. And uh, together with introducing this plasmid, they also introduced DNA molecules that could be used as donors for homology-directed repair of the site of the break. So really the purpose here is to use Cas9 to efficiently introduce a double-stranded break in a particular place that could then be repaired by incorporation of a desired DNA template. And, um, and, so, the, and, and so to uh, the, the other purpose of this was really to be able to do something in vivo that those of us that are biochemists are very used to doing in vitro, which is basically to generate a large library of mutants from which one could select for better enzymes that operate in, a, in an actual live cell setting. So going back to the example with the, the uh, cell bios transporter, they had a transporter that was working in cells, but it wasn't very fast. And so how do they find mutants that are going to be more efficient in doing that? And so the strategy here was to introduce, together with this plasmid encoding the Cas9 diRNA to form this complex, they introduced DNA oligonucleotides that included a selection marker as well as a central oligo that was uh, mutagenized and had a, uh, I think they just used mutagenic PCR to, to generate this. So they could generate a very large library of mutants in the chromosome very efficiently and very quickly using Cas9. This is just some data showing that depending on the strain that they actually use, they could get very high efficiencies of uh, the incorporation of these sequences at this targeted site, especially compared to, this. Um, compared to, uh, this was actually the, the original paper for using Cas9 yeast that was published in the church lab, where they saw very, very, uh, they saw it working, but very low efficiencies. And just by playing around with the way that they, uh, they uh, were able to design the guide RNAs, it's very highly stabilized in these cells. They got, in many of these strains, much higher levels of efficiency and incorporation of these modified, these, uh, these mutagenized sequences. And so then they can do selections um, for these uh, cells that have chromosomally incorporated mutations and look for cells that are growing better on cellulobios. Compared to what they found, uh, which is sort of the original data that they have, which is shown over here on the left-hand side, uh, they found that now the kinetics and production of ethanol were much, much higher. They got sort of tenfold improvement using one of the alleles that they got through this sort of selection procedure over what they found with the wild-type transporter under anaerobic conditions. So just illustrating the power of using Cas9 to do this kind of um, in vivo selection that would have been very difficult to do with other methods. And then finally, I just want to, want to mention uh, sort of lots of excitement, as you know, about applications in human health and, you know, interest in uh, applications both for creating better animal models of human disease um, and you know, doing things like engineering stem cells for all sorts of, of applications, and also we hope eventually for actually treating uh, patients. And um, so one of the, the actually very early experiments that was done with Cas9 was done uh, initially by Rudy Danish at the White Men, but then uh, very closely thereafter by several other people, including my colleague at Berkeley, uh, Russell Vance was to basically just take uh, the Cas9 guide RNA complex and inject it into fertilized mouse embryos. And so this is a, showing you an example of this with a fertilized embryo and we're holding it there with a head and you see this needle coming in and injecting material into the uh, this fertilized egg. And, uh, and in this uh, case, this example with Russell, they were initially doing this experiment by injecting plasmid DNA coding Cas9 together with guide 
RNA transcripts. And now what we've been doing more recently is actually injecting pre-assembled protein RNA complexes. So you don't have to, you don't have to wait for the uh, transcription and translation of the protein. It's pre-assembled with guide RNA. It goes into cells. We get very, very efficient, very rapid editing of the genome with really undetectable off-target effects. So we're really excited about this, this sort of way of delivery. And in the end, uh, the result, this was actually the very first experiment that Russell Vance did. He sent me this uh, email with this image in it. And uh, when I found out what the experiment was, I was really blown away. So the experiment was basically to take uh, fertilized eggs from mice and inject Cas9 with a guide RNA that targets the tyrosinase gene. So this is a gene that's critical for development of the, the black coat color in this strain of mice. And so what you can see here is that six of these eight pups are white, and when their genomes were sequenced, they actually had a homozygous change at the site of the tyrosinase gene that was targeted by Cas9. So incredibly efficient uh, genome editing in these animals. And so of course, being able to do this kind of germline editing in, in uh, animals like mice and monkeys raises the question, what about in humans, right? And so you know, we and others have been, of course, thinking a lot about this. And I uh, started about a year ago with colleagues in the Bay Area to begin discussing this and realizing that this was probably coming, whether we wanted it to or we didn't. And so uh, I had a, indeed a small meeting in Napa Valley in January that led to uh, this publication, in which we proposed what we call a prudent path forward for genome uh, editing, in particular germline editing in humans. Um, and uh, sort of laid out the position that uh, the clinical applications of this, in other words, applications that would lead to an actual genome in human, uh, right now should really not proceed because we don't understand well enough yet the, the, the safety of this technology, the efficiency of this technology. And frankly, I think we still don't really understand enough about the genome in most cases to really be able to make uh, editing, have editing events have the desired effects without perhaps unintended uh, consequences. But this led to kind of a media uh, storm and lots of sort of flurry of, of activity and this is only sort of escalating. So you know, you're going to see a lot of, of, of uh, articles forthcoming in the, in the popular media about this. You might have seen the issue, recent issue of The Economist that had this on the cover with three articles about uh, genome editing, in particular human germline editing inside. And so there's a lot of interest internationally right now to convene groups of scientists, uh, industry uh, representatives, as well as patient advocacy groups to really discuss this depth and figure out how we as a society can proceed around this. And I think there's a really, really important role for industry to play in terms of thinking about how do we explain this technology to the public. And Jonathan made a really important point that, you know, that it's really important to reach out to uh, non-scientists, to explain our science, and have them understand what it is we're doing in the laboratory and how it might affect their lives. And I think that you know, for industry, it's really important to, to do this. And, you know, we've seen, we've all seen sort of examples where that isn't handled carefully, then there can be sort of a backlash. So we really would like to avoid that in this case. It's clearly a really exciting, powerful technology. It's going to do a lot of things that are going to be great. And we want to make sure that this, the rollout of the products that are going to come from this are going to be uh, appreciated and accepted by, by the public. And that's really it. So I just want to thank my group. Uh, this is my picture of my lab from last summer. On our, uh, we took a 20th anniversary lab trip to Hawaii, which was great, back to my hometown. And uh, I mentioned uh, uh, several of these. Well, actually, one of these is Emmanuel, a collaborator. We've also had some really fun, uh, active collaborations ongoing uh, with these folks here. I want to thank our funding sources.
particularly the NSF, that has been uh, really fundamental in allowing us to do this sort of exploratory research that led to an exciting technology. And finally, I just want to uh, introduce you to the United Genomics Initiative and invite you to check us out on the web. So this is a joint initiative between Berkeley and UCSF with a number of uh, academic uh, founders involved. And we're basically interested in, in academic industry partnerships. We'd love to entertain opportunities to work with NOVA's offices if you guys are interested. So, thank you very much. Questions? Uh, hi, I'm Mike Bates, I'm um, I know here, but we appreciate the power of this technology. The question I had was that this is dependent upon the expression of Cas9 across different organisms. So, do you want to comment on whether there are different genes of Cas9, different versions of Cas9 that are used? Uh, because the expression would may or may not, the gene may or may not be expressed in different organisms. And I had a second question that a lot of work is being done in eukaryotic organisms right now using Cas9. And paradoxically, the gene has come from bacteria, but uh, there's, there are not a lot of tools available and not a lot of work that has been done using bacteria. So if you could comment on that. Yeah, so two great questions. So um, you know, the first question about different forms of Cas9, different variants that might be you know, better or worse expressed in different systems. I think that um, what I've heard from, so you know, I would say you know, probably 95% or more of the work that's being done right now with Cas9 is using the strep biogenes protein uh, that we've characterized. And um, you know, I'm sure that'll change going forward, but, but uh, what I've heard from people, in fact, I just talked to a colleague recently who had had trouble getting working in a particular fungus, but when they did co-optimization as part of the protein for the according to the usage of codons in that fungus, then they got really robust testing expression. So sometimes it's just a matter of that sort of technical thing. Um, it is a big protein, so it does have to fold uh, accurately, but at least so far we haven't really seen issues with that, and certainly you know, we're working closely in my lab with various mammalian uh, systems and plants, but I don't know about fungal systems that may be different. Um, there are other variants that are you know, starting to be employed, and I think you know over time we're certainly hoping to. I, I sort of imagine having the New England BioLabs version of you know the Casamine toolbox, where you basically can pull out a Casamine that's appropriate to your particular cell type or application, has the PAM specificity, et cetera, for it. Take a while to get there, but I think that's an exciting thing to think about. And the earlier question um, was about the. Uh, Using bacteria. Yeah, right, using it in bacteria, microbes. So, so yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're right, it hasn't been uh, used very widely yet in bacteria. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, I think largely it's because there already are, are pretty good genetic tools in bacteria, right? I mean, they've, been, they've been working on them for decades, and the tools are there to do a lot of manipulations that people want to do. That being said, you know, like this example in Cerevisiae, Cerevisiae is, again, it's a great model organism. There's lots of very easy genetic manipulation that you can do. Nonetheless, there are certain kinds of applications. Uh, where casting could really be beneficial. So I think probably we'll see over time more and more applications in bacteria, and um, why not? I mean, it's, you know, it's designed to operate in these types of cells. Right? Yeah, that's 
Cas9 access I think it says something about both, frankly. But I think you're, you're getting to a great, a great point, and that is that you know I think there's been this kind of vision of heterochromatin being very, very, very active and static. You know. And uh, from talking to recently, I was uh, talking to Jerry Crabtree, who's doing a lot of work at Stanford on on this very question of you know, really what are the dynamics of chromatin in general and heterochromatin in particular. He really tells me that a lot of their data point to a much more dynamic kind of structure that sort of talk to think about. So I suspect it's a combination of the two. And the other thing is that we don't really know at what stage, say, in the cell cycle that, that kind of targeting might be occurring, right? And whether there, there could be um, proteins that are you know, actively uh, winding protein structure that allow casting to get in. I think you know there's still a lot of questions to try to that we would like to try to address to answer that. Are these affected at all by modification of the DNA, like methylation, or is it totally independent of that? Seems to be totally independent. Yeah, it's a, it a great question. Early on, people thought, oh, this must affect it, but it doesn't seem to be the case. One last question. Over here. <laughs> oh, okay. Matt, why don't you go ahead? Uh, thank you. Uh, I was just wondering, could this also open up for like very targeted antimicrobial? Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think there's you know, there's already a few papers in the literature on, on that idea. Uh, also, antiviral, right, sort of taking advantage of what it naturally does in bacteria that are applying in other types of cells. So I think I think that's a really exciting direction in the future is to do targeted, uh, make targeted applications to pathogens. My question was, uh, as far as genome editing, is is anyone using it yet? No, it, a few years ago, there was a big push toward, uh, especially bacteria, making a minimal genome. Um, are there people using CRISPR-Cas9 to create minimal genomes for things like E. coli and other wild organisms? But, you know, how small can you go? Yeah, so uh, I haven't heard of that for microbes. I mean, it's an obvious thing. It's something that, you know, the George Church Lab might be very obviously be doing. I did hear recently a rumor, and I haven't figured out who's doing this yet, but I heard that there's somebody at, at, on my campus it's actually making a mini mouse, so they're minimizing the mouse genome, and I think it's a very, you know, it's a very interesting application of this. So it allows you to really query the roles of, of uh, sort of the, the dark matter of the genome in a way. So. All right. With that, I want to thank Professor Dr. Yeah.